You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you once more this morning asking that we might indeed in gladness hear your voice. Speak to us. Speak to us from your word because your word is the source of life that we so desperately need. Because your word is a beautiful thing. Because your word illumines our path that we might see where we should go. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm having some microphone. Am I good? Okay. Last week we began a new series uh, on the book of 1 John. And you'll recall that John said at the beginning of chapter 1 that uh, he, speaking on behalf of the apostles, was inviting us into a, a shared fellowship with God through Christ Jesus, through the, the word of life that they had proclaimed. And he continues today in verse 5, saying, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. And we kind of lose this in the English a little bit, but, but the idea behind this word proclaim that we've seen in verses 2 and 4 last week and this week in verse 5, and this word message that pops up at the beginning of verse 5, they're related in the Greek. They have the same you know, cognate. And so, so they come from the same same uh, basis. So it might be better for us, instead of saying message at the beginning of verse 5, perhaps we call it a proclamation. Right? So, so if we were to say, this is the proclamation we have heard from him and proclaim to you. I like that a little bit better because of kind of the urgency that it lends to it as well, right? I mean, you might, you might come home and, and ask somebody who's there, are there any messages for me, right? And somebody might say, oh, well, yeah, so-and-so called, and they just wanted to see how you were doing, right? And, and that's a message. You know, it's not very urgent. It's not very weighty, but it's a message. This message or proclamation that John, on behalf of the apostles, is proclaiming is far weightier than that. It is it is a proclamation. It is something of great importance. It is something of great urgency. It is not just how you doing. It is something that has great impact on our very lives. And as such, when he begins to talk about it, he doesn't begin with us. He begins with God. Because that's where we need to start with everything if we are to understand anything. We need to begin with God. Later in the book, he will speak about God, and he will say that God is love. And we can think of that with all kinds of sweetness and warmth in our heart, but we won't go there today. What we're going to look at is something else that he starts with that will help us to better understand later on what it means that God is love. Today, he begins in a different place. So we ask, what is God? For some of us, we might think of God as, as some kind of gray-haired wizard in the sky who exists to essentially be a genie and, and give us our wishes, right? That would be a wrong, a bad understanding of God, but that's what some people think. 
other people say God doesn't really exist. He's just a, a figment of our imagination that, that we've kind of developed so that we might be able to have him as a, uh, a coping mechanism to deal with the, the troubles and the trials that we face in life. Again, we would reject this, of course, but that's what some people think God is. We, of course, would, would want to have a more theologically and biblically based understanding of what God is. Perhaps we might turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question four asks this very question. What is God? The answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, that's weighty. That's, that's full. It has a lot of meaning to it. Perhaps we want to even though that is true, look at it in a different light, from a different perspective, with a different highlight. Maybe we want to understand better the relational nature of God. So we would say, what is God? God is our Heavenly Father. Very true. We could indeed even say, as John does later on, God is love. But at this point, that's not where he goes. At this point, if we are to understand God rightly and all those other things, we have to first understand something else about him. And that is what he focuses on here. He says it very concisely in verse 5. God is light. God is light. And getting that right here at the beginning of this letter will help us to understand everything else better. Helping us understand life better. Getting that right, that God is light will help us even to understand what John is saying as he responds to the falsehoods that are taking root in the churches to whom he is writing this letter. He says, verse 5, This is the proclamation we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What does John mean when he says God is light? Well, it can mean a number of different things when we talk about light in these, these terms. Uh, even in the Bible, it can point to a number of different things. But what John is talking about when he, when he speaks of God as light here is he wants to, uh, us to understand that God is holy. God is, God is holy. He is pure. The idea that we are sinners loses all its meaning if we don't first understand that God is holy. Right? That's, that's the basis for understanding our standing before him. Certain things we understand naturally about God, I think. We understand kind of his, his power, his magnificence, his, his glory. Right? The Psalms tell us the heavens declare the glory of God, right? We can look at the world and some things are, are just self-evident to us. And all kinds of religions teach them, right? All kinds of religions talk about a powerful God, a mighty God, but not all of them talk about a holy God. John wants to point us in that direction to the holiness of God. He is not, as some other religions might teach, a a capricious God or a, a, 
an unpredictable or even malevolent sometimes God. He is not this way at all. Rather, he is steadfast and faithful in his holiness, unwavering from it. He is light. That's the idea, pure in his holiness. And throughout the scriptures, we see kind of a contrast, don't we, between darkness and light, referring to evil and good. Right? We see it in the words of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He says in Luke 22, as he's being taken, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Or we can look to Ephesians 6, where Paul tells the church in Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Darkness, namely the absence of light, is seen as the picture of, of evil. And, and the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we don't deserve anything other than being left to the powers of darkness. We've done nothing that merits our being pulled away from that or, or saved out of darkness. God had every right to justly just leave us to the darkness. Just leave us and be done with us. But he has, in his grace, not done this. Paul tells us in Colossians that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a gracious gift he has given us in this. What, what grace he has shown us. Right? We, we were in this kingdom of darkness. We deserved to be there. We had chosen to be there. We demanded to be there. And he said, not so fast. I will pick you up and carry you over. Like, like a little child who might go kicking and screaming. That is how we've gone. He's taken us and deposited us instead in this kingdom of light. He has shown us such great mercy and love that was undeserved that we've even fought against. We often want to walk in the darkness, which is, of course, the height of folly if you have light available to you. Why would you ever traverse in the darkness when you have light available to you? Have you ever... Have you ever around dusk maybe pulled out of a parking lot on your way to go somewhere you're you're driving along and it starts to get a little bit darker outside and maybe you pull off of the main street to a street that's not quite as well lit and all of a sudden you realize oh my goodness it's really dark why is it so dark I, I don't understand this and then you say oh my headlights aren't on <laughs> that's why it's not dark what do you do at that point do you say oh well my headlights aren't on I'll just keep going in the dark. Of course not. That would be ridiculous. You turn on your headlights because you have light available to you. You turn on the light because it directs your path. It leads you in the way you should go. It protects you. It cares for you. It provides a way for you. And yet so often in life, we choose to walk in the darkness when we have light available to us. God says, 
don't do this. That's not what we are to do. When we, when we dally in the darkness, we can quickly get into trouble, much the same as driving down the road in the darkness without your headlights might lead to an accident. It might lead to pain and suffering and damage. So too, our walking in the darkness can be deadly. It, it can lead to self-destruction when we dally with sin. Instead, we should flee it and walk in the light. That's not the only reason we're called to live in the light. That is one reason, one very important reason. But there's another reason that we should live in the light. In Luke 8, we read, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but they put it on a stand. Why? So that those who enter may see the light. We are called to walk in the light so that when others look at us, they might see the light. Right? Because the light isn't something that we've generated in and of ourselves. It's not something that we've created. It is rather the light of Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world, living in us, living through us. And so when others who live in this dark, dark world look at us, they should see a light. They should see a light shining brightly in us so that they might see Christ Jesus. And they might see the glory and the beauty and the wonder of his light. And thus be drawn to him. We're called to walk in the light. That others might be drawn to Jesus. Just last week we saw in our unison scripture that he is the light of men. And then this week in our unison scripture reading. It spoke about how the light came into the world. But men love darkness so often in our world. That is the case. It is a dark world where people love darkness. They they pursue it. They want it. And that all the more will set us apart if we are walking in the light. If we are walking in the light, we'll look more and more different. Too often, I think, we, we try to acculturate ourselves. We try to say, well, we need to reach out to the culture, so we need to become like the culture. Now, there is a sense in which this is true. Obviously, we need to speak a language that is spoken that people can understand. But on the other hand, we shouldn't become so enculturated that we walk in the darkness as opposed to walking in the light. We need to shine brightly as those who are of Christ Jesus, those who are children of the light. And so each of us must day by day, moment by moment even, answer a question for ourselves. Will I walk in the darkness or will I walk as a child of the light. Which, which is it going to be? What's it going to be for you today? Which are you going to be? Will you choose to follow the light of the world, the Prince of Peace? Or instead, will you choose to, choose to follow the Prince of the Power of the Air, the, the Prince of Darkness Grim, as Martin Luther famously called him? Right? Who will you follow? Now, of course, you say, well, of course, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's, it's easy, right? Why would I follow the devil? I'll follow Jesus. That's, that's an easy question, Pete. But is it really that easy? Right? Because, you see, every time you sin, you're choosing to follow Satan instead. And I don't know about you, actually. I'm lying. I do know about you. Because I know about me. And I know I sin an awful lot. And so there are many, many times in each day that I am choosing to follow Satan 
and walk in darkness instead of walking in the light. There are implications to following Jesus. There are implications to walking with him. There are implications to being a a child of the light. And we need to understand those, and we need to choose rightly in light of those. And, and, And that leads us into these three lies that John is talking about here in this passage. He's talking to, to three lies. There's these three lies that have, have kind of crept into the churches to whom he's writing. And he, he wants to combat them, to confront them, to say, no, don't think this way. Rather, we need to think this way. Right? And so these three come in rapid succession here. The first lie we see in verse 6. He says, if we say, you see the understanding is this is what some of the people were saying. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, there are those who were Gnostics in the church at the time who who said, you know, we figured out the higher truth. We understand the the spiritual reality here. And, And as long as we've got this spiritual truth down in our minds, it really doesn't matter how we live. Right? We can do whatever we want to do, just we've got it figured out. Right? We're, we're kind of this super Christian over here who has things figured out, and you guys are just kind of ordinary folks, but, but we're over here and we've got this, and it really doesn't matter what we do, we're just kind of the superstars, right? And We've got it figured out, and so we can live however we want to live, and it doesn't matter. They claimed a fellowship with God that was special, But the reality was their lifestyle, the way they lived their life, betrayed that fact. It showed that they actually had no fellowship with God whatsoever. In fact, they had had lived their life in a way that they had separated from other believers, right? Believing they were better. You guys stay over there, we're going to be over here. Kind of like the Pharisees, right? Who, Who separated themselves and thought of themselves as being better than everyone else. But, but he says here that, that no, that, That can't be the way it is. You see, because we are all, no matter how good or bad or in in between we are, we're all saved by grace through faith, not by works. Now, indeed, it will lead to works. It will lead to walking in a certain way. We won't go on sinning. We won't walk in the darkness, as we have said Ian Hamilton, one commentator, talks about walking in the darkness. He says that that is to live outside the revelation of God's character and will given to us in Scripture. In practical terms, it means living in defiance of God's commandments, one of which is that we love one another. Right. So, so if my understanding of spirituality is such that that I think by becoming really spiritual, I separate from all the rest of you, then I've got it wrong, right? Because because I have to be in fellowship with you. I have to be loving you well. We have to be interrelated with one another if we are to truly be walking in the light. If we walk in the light, he says in verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. 
It doesn't matter how big or small it is. Right? And there are two groups of people that need to hear this. Right? On the one hand, there are some of you sitting out there today that when you see that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, you look around this room at other people and you say, even his sin? Really? I mean, like, I know the things that he's done. And you're saying the blood of Jesus cleanses even his sin? And John says, yes, even his sin. Even, even the worst sinner here, his sin can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. Even the worst sinner not here, his sin can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. The worst sinner that you can possibly imagine, and even three shades worse than that, his sin can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus washes us and cleanses us and frees us from all sin. And so if that's true, then you have no reason to remove yourself from fellowship with other believers. Right? Because you are no better than they are. Right? The worst of sinners who has come to faith, who has trusted in Christ Jesus, is right there with you. Now there's another group that needs to hear this. Just like there's a group that says the blood of Jesus cleanses his sin, there might be some of you who say the blood of Jesus cleanses even my sin. You might be sitting there saying, Pete, you don't, you don't know what I've done. Pete, you don't know the thoughts that go through my mind. Pete, you don't, you don't understand what has happened in my past. Pete, you don't, you don't know the things that I say and the things that I do, the, the different sins that I've committed. And you're right, I don't know. I don't know. But God does. God knows and he inspired John to write these words. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So whatever sin you have in your life, take it to the cross. Take it to the cross and, and be unburdened of it at the cross. For Jesus has, with his blood, paid for that sin. And you can have forgiveness. Trust in him. Be cleansed of that sin. Be freed from its burden. And that's why we need to confess our sin to him. We need to, we need to trust in him always and, and turn to him and give him our sin. That's what... What F.F. Bruce says, he says, truth in the inward being is what God desires in his people. And where that is present, it will manifest itself in all the ways of life. See, we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. And that will flow out in a life of continued growth and holiness and continued growth in fellowship. You see, we can't claim to walk in the light and not love one another. And John will talk about that at length throughout the letter. And, and we'll get to that more in future weeks. But for today, I just want to focus on this point, this idea that church often sees discipleship and fellowship 
kind of as two separate things, right? We do the, the fellowship stuff, you know, the fun stuff maybe over here, and then we do the discipleship, that's the hard stuff over here, right? We see them as two separate things, but, but I think what we're seeing here in this text is that the reality is they are but two sides of one coin, right? Because, because as we are growing in holiness, we should have a growing desire to fellowship with one another. And as we grow in fellowship, we will encourage one another on to holiness. And so fellowship and, and, and discipleship really should be melded together, two parts of one coin, as I say, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that makes both of them possible, right? Because it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sin, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that has purchased us that we might be one body bound together in him. So he has called us to love one another as he has loved us and given his life for us. We cannot go on walking in darkness. A second lie is that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does it mean when he says if we say we have no sin? Well, it can mean that like we have the idea that, that there is no such thing as sin. I don't think that's what he's talking about at this point. Probably what he's talking about is more the idea that of, of a Christian perfectionism, this idea that I've come to Christ, I've received his forgiveness, and now I don't sin anymore, ever again. Now, I don't know if you've ever had somebody teach you this kind of thing or say this kind of thing to you, but I hope you realize that this is not true. It's interesting what John says here. He says that if we say we have no sin, not that we, we are lying to other people. No, he says we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. And we have a real propensity to want to deceive ourselves. We want to believe the best of ourselves. We want to think the best of ourselves, don't we? You know, we want to think of ourselves as being basically good. We want to have a, a positive self-image. The world tells you, just trust your heart and be the best you could be. And, and you're good enough and you're smart enough. And, but, but really, it's far better than having a positive self-image is having an accurate self-image. Right? Because let's say I want to, I want to, uh, I'm up in the balcony up there, let's say, and, and I say, you know what I want to do from up in the balcony is I, I want to jump from there down here to the, down to the floor of the, of the sanctuary. You know, and you say, Pete, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure you can do that. And I say, no, I've got a positive self-image. You know, I can do it. I'm confident in myself. I'm going to trust my heart, and if I try hard enough, I'll accomplish it. I'm still going to end up with a broken leg, right? It doesn't matter how much I thought I could do it. I would have been far better off to have an accurate understanding of my abilities. And so it is with all of life. We should not trust our heart, which the Word of God tells us is deceitful above all things. Rather, we should trust the Word of God. And we should agree with what He has to say in His assessment. In fact, he says here in verse 9, if we confess our sins, that word confess in Greek is homo legeo, homo the same, legeo to speak. So, so if we confess our sins, it means if confess is just to say the same, right? To speak the same, to agree, to agree with who? To agree with God, 
to agree with God who is light, God who is holy, God who is pure, to agree with him is what we're doing when we confess our sins. Why are we better off when we do that? Well, if we confess our sins, verse 9 tells us, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to carry through on the promises that he has made. Right? Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or Jeremiah 31, 34, where he says, They all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins. No more. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. God has promised, and he is faithful to carry through on what he has promised. How can he do this and still be just, though? How can he do this and still be right? Right? Because we don't deserve to be forgiven. You see, but Christ Jesus has given us his righteousness. He has given us his holiness. On the cross, he has died for our sins, paying the penalty we deserve. He's given us the righteousness that he has lived and that he has earned so that in his righteousness, we might be seen as righteous and God need not forfeit his justice at all. For Jesus has accrued the merit that we need and he has paid the penalty that we deserved. So we don't want to deceive ourselves, rather confess, agree with God. The third lie, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The word, his word, is not in us. No longer does John say we have no sin. Now he says, if we have not sinned, he puts it in a past tense. The idea here is like what we were saying before. We're saying, you know, I've never really sinned. There is no such thing as sin, perhaps. The minimization of our own sin, of our own wrongdoing. We say, hey, it's no big deal. Culture likes this idea, right? Culture, culture likes to, to say, you know, do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. But God is abundantly clear that it does. We sang it just a moment ago in Psalm 51. I am evil, born in sin, right? It's... Psalm 51, verse 5 actually said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. Psalm 14, 3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear. We are all sinners. And if we deny this, then the word of God is not in us. If we deny that we are sinners, we have rejected God and made him a liar. Right? Our sin is compounded not only if we sin, but we have besmirched the good name of God. We need to remember who he is. He is not a liar. He is light. And in him is no darkness at all which takes us back where we began of course this idea of God is light light which is the source of life light which causes growth 
light which gives wisdom and direction. It exposes which was once in the darkness. And ultimately light which overcomes the darkness, which defeats the darkness, which expels the darkness. Right? Remember back in Genesis 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was. And through, from that point on through history, there's been this alternating light and darkness, light and darkness, day and night, day and night. And it's gone back and forth. And it reminds us of the fact that we, we live in a dark world, but there is light to come. Whenever it gets dark, we can be reminded that the light is coming. And one day, it will no longer be dark anymore. In Revelation 21, we read of that day, when we will dwell forever in the city of the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that city, we read, has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. There will be no darkness, for God, who is light, will be fully revealed. We will know him as he truly is, because we will see him face to face. And there will be no more death, and there will be no more pain, and there will be no more tears, and there will be no more sin. There will be no darkness. We will love him and love one another perfectly. So let us live this day in light of that day. Brothers and sisters, let us live in the light. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of light that is ours. We thank you for your faithfulness and your justice. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for Christ Jesus, your son, who died that we might know you. I just pray now that if there are any who have not trusted in you, that they would today. I pray that you would move in, in our hearts in such a way that causes us to, to surrender all to you to follow you faithfully and fully, that each of us might walk in the light of him who has given himself for us. Be with us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.